Uh, welcome to Faith. My name is Mike, and I love bacon. Um, thanks for being with us today in person. Thanks for being with us today online. If you're here for the first time, we are in week three of a series that we have entitled In This House We Believe. And in our culture today, really, th this is a statement that is usually followed by a, a declaration on somebody's part about what they believe to be true about God and humanity and the most important things in life. Now, in our culture today, you usually find this on a graphic. You know, you'll find this on a yard sign. You will find this on a t-shirt. You'll find it on some kind of social media post. All right? And usually, it's oftentimes followed by something very political and oftentimes polarizing, um, which I just, I haven't got much patience for that anymore. Uh, so I like finding the silly ones. So let me share you an example of uh, one with you. In this house, we believe reality is a contract. Chaos is a constant. Elves control traffic patterns. Amen? Yeah, yeah. Emotions are edible. Napoleon Dynamite's a good movie. Who, who are my Napoleon Dynamite fans? Thank you. You have sweet skills, right? The sun is an incubator and the planets are eggs. All right. Not taking themselves as seriously as others, but this is the idea. Now, here's the thing. This practice of, of you know, taking the things that are most important about life, thinking deeply about them, and then you know, confessing what we believe to be true as far as this goes... This is not a new practice. It's not new for the culture. It's not new for the church. Putting on some kind of graphic, that's new, right? But for hundreds and hundreds of years, the church has had its in this house we believe declaration. It's called the Apostles' Creed. And so what we're doing in this series is each week, we're just taking a section of the creed and we're exploring it together. Each week we're just taking a small portion of the creed and going, okay, is this what the Bible really says? Because the creed is not authoritative in and of itself. It is meant to represent the central truths of the Christian faith. So each week we're going, hey, here's what the creed says. Does the Bible say that? What does the Bible say about that? And how is that relevant to our lives? And as we continue today, we're going to look at the section of the creed that declares, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So let's pray together, and then we'll jump into things today. Just as we begin today, God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that you would just give us clarity to see what the Bible says about who you are, to see how it is relevant to our lives in just significant ways. Meet us, give us hearts to hear from you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the frustrating things about this series is you'll take just this little bit of the creed and there's still more to talk about than you've got time to talk about. And we're going to... All series long, we're going to run into this. It's just, it is what it is. We didn't want to spend, you know, 50 weeks on the Apostles' Creed. And so uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to limit ourselves to just two aspects of who God is as the Creed highlights for us here. First one being this idea that he is Father. And the next one being this idea that he is Almighty Creator. And since my personality type is anal, retentive, concrete, sequential, we're going to go one at a time. And we're going to start with Father because that's the one that appears first, doggone it. All right, so this idea that God's Father, all over the Bible, and, and it's interesting, the Bible will talk about it in a very specific way and then in a general way. 
And when it talks about it in a general way, which it does far less frequently, it will talk about God as the father of all of humanity. Like Paul will say to the Athenians, we are his offspring. But more often than not, when the Bible talks about this idea that God is father, it's speaking in a very specific way, and it's speaking specifically to followers of Jesus. Again and again throughout the Bible, we are told, if you are a follower of Jesus, God himself is your father. You have a father in heaven, and he is God. Now, when it comes to this idea that God is the father of those who are following Jesus, the Bible probably most graphically talks about this with the concept of divine adoption. You read about this in, in Galatians and Ephesians and again in Romans. And today, we'll look mostly at the Romans passage and we'll kind of unpack this idea that God is our father and, and we, we are his children by divine adoption. Now, as Paul sets this idea up, and we're going to be in Romans 8 today, if you want to follow along on your device or in your Bible, it'll be up on the screens as well. Um, Paul, he's, he's contrasting in Romans 8, two different groups of people. He, he talks about a group of people who are led by the spirit of brokenness that resides within them and that leads to all kinds of death in their lives. And he contrasts that first group with a second group by people who are led by the spirit of God living inside of them. A spirit that sets them free from slavery and fear. And as he describes this second group, Paul writes this. He says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. So, so Paul's telling us that when we put our, our, our faith in Jesus and his saving work on the cross, that we are brought into God's family, that we are adopted as his children. And, and this idea of adoption... There are past tense, present tense, and future tense realities that go with it. And as Paul begins here, he, he points to the past tense realities as they exist in this idea of divine adoption. And, and he does so in a way that just was completely counterintuitive and countercultural to the, Roman, the, the Greco-Roman world that he's writing to. See, when we adopt today, we usually do so for certain reasons, and, and there's a desired, you know, like, kind of child that you're adopting. Most people who are adopting, they want to adopt an infant. Some will adopt older, but overwhelming majority of people who adopt, they're, they're looking to adopt an infant. In the Greco-Roman world, you would never do that. See, adoption existed there, but it was primarily practiced by people who were wealthy. So if I, you know, if I had a bunch of money, a lot of property, this is massive estate, but I didn't have any heirs. I didn't have any children. I would adopt one. Somebody to pass on my, my resources to, somebody to pass on the family name to. But I would, as a Roman, I would never adopt an infant. Who knows what that kid's going to grow up to be like, right? Like you had this little child and you loved him and look, what the, look what's happened, right? You know, as they grow up. So the idea was, no, I'm going to adopt a young adult, Somebody who's already demonstrated they're worthy to carry on the family name. They're going to manage the resources that I entrust into their care well. That's what I would, that, that's what I'd adopt. I wouldn't adopt an infant. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, the primary motivation for me adopting was my self-interests. 
making sure my name was carried on and my estate and my resources were managed well. And if I was adopting you, I, the reason I was going to adopt you, it was all about the merit that you had shown, the potential you had displayed, the performance that I could already measure in your life. This is how divine adoption worked in that world. Now, as Paul writes into this world, and he writes about these past tense realities when it comes to us being adopted as God's children, he does so in a way that is gloriously and graciously different. Prior to going to pastoral ministry, I worked as a social worker in a number of different settings. One of them was for an agency called Boysville. Now, Boysville is basically jail for kids. Kids would go out, they would commit like adult crimes as minors, they would get caught, they would be sentenced, and one of the places that they sent them was to Boysville, and they would send these kids to us, and they'd be like, hey, your job is to fix them. One of, the, one of the divisions that I worked in in Boysville was supervised independent living. See, there were certain kids after they'd gotten caught and they'd served their time and were rehabilitated and were ready to release them, they had nowhere to go. And for a number of those kids, they had nowhere to go because the things they had done were so heinous, so bad, their families wouldn't take them back. They were done with them. In fact, some of those kids, they had done things that were so bad, the state couldn't find anyone to take them into their home. And so these kids are minors. You can't just release them to their own care. And so they would move from normal treatment to supervised independent living. And as a supervised independent living worker, I had the kids on my caseload, I'm like, hey, here's how you find an apartment. Here's how you get a job. Here's how you balance your checkbook. Here's how you pay your bills. You were teaching a child to live independently, but you were supervising them as you did so. When God went looking for children to adopt into his family, he didn't go looking for people who he was confident were going to do a good job carrying on the family name. He didn't look for individuals who, who were demonstrating they were going to manage well what he entrusted into his, their care. He, he didn't adopt based on merit, potential, or performance. No, the people who God adopted into his family would have fit very well into the supervised independent living crowd. About our condition when God adopted us. In Ephesians, Paul, in a very flattering way, describes it like this. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. When God adopted us into his family, it wasn't about potential and performance and merit. He adopted us in spite of those things. When God adopted us into his family, he wasn't motivated by his self-interests. He was motivated by a reckless love for you and for me. When we were at our absolute worst, God adopted us into his family. That's, that's the past tense reality that goes with divine adoption. Now, not only is there a past tense reality, there's a present tense reality as well. And so you go back to Romans 8. 
Paul's like, hey, God's made you his child. He set you free from slavery and fear. He's put his spirit inside of you. And this adoption into his family, it causes us to naturally cry out by that spirit, Abba, Father. And the spirit of God that is within us testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. See, this this is a present tense reality that comes with adoption. And it is incredibly personal and it is incredibly paternal. And it causes something deep within us emotionally and spiritually to cry out to God, Daddy. And and this, this thing that cries out to us, it cries out this way to our Abba in heaven because there's something inside of us, this spirit that God has put inside of us is telling us again and again and again, you have a good, good father in heaven. Now, Jesus tries to express this idea a number of ways in the ways that he teaches about God our Father. For example, Jesus will say, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air, They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Jesus is like, listen, you are valuable to your Father in heaven. He cares about what's going on in your life. You can count on him to look out for you. And not only does Jesus say, hey, God cares about the genuine needs in your life, but he's like, God cares about the mundane details of your world as well. Elsewhere, Jesus will say this. He'll say, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? But not one of them falls to the ground outside of your father's care. He even counts the hair on your head So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Jesus is like, God is so enthralled with you. He's keeping track of nonsense like how many hairs you have on your head. A job which some of you make easier for God than others. (laughs) Amen, Percy? (laughs) Jesus is like, listen, your father cares for you. Your father, he's worried about the things that are important. He's worried about nonsense in your life. And he cares about you so much, he just wants you to come and ask. Elsewhere, Jesus will teach this. He'll say, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus is like, listen, if as imperfect parents, there's next to nothing you wouldn't do for your child and a genuine need that they have, how much more will your perfect father in heaven be there to look out for you? This idea that God is father, it is a present tense reality that tells us God loves us. He cares about our needs. He cares about the silly things. And he's just waiting for us to come and ask him for help. Now, all that said, there are some of us in the room today, there are some of us who are watching online today, 
we really struggle with this idea. We struggle with this idea because either in reality or in perception, the father we had here on earth wasn't like this. Either in perception, our dad was the kind of guy who would have given us a stone. In reality, you're like, no, you don't understand. The guy I grew up with, he would have given, he gave me snakes. And so we really wrestle with this idea that God is our father, and this is a present tense reality that should mean all kinds of things for our lives. And if that's you, here's what I would ask you. Do you have a child in your life who you just love deeply? Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's your grandchild, maybe it's a niece, maybe it's a nephew, maybe it's a, a family friend, but do, do you have a child and that kid just captures your heart? If you do, I, I would encourage you, just bring that child to mind and just for a moment try and get, just get a sense of how it is you feel about that kid. See, that's just a taste just a taste of how your Father in Heaven feels about you right now. The the divine adoption, this is a present tense reality. And then it's, it's a future tense reality as well. But back to Romans. Back to Romans. Paul, Paul will say this. He'll say, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Did you catch that? If if we are God's children, if we are followers of Jesus, we are co-heirs with Jesus. The inheritance, the future tense reality is that the inheritance that Jesus has coming, we have coming. That that should be mind-numbing. But it's, it's right there. It's right there. What Jesus, in the economy of God's family, the father doesn't treat the natural born son any differently than he does the adopted children. In, in his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer has a chapter called Sons of God. And in it, he describes his family in the church that he served in. And, and the family, they desperately wanted kids. This young couple desperately wanted kids and they couldn't have any. And so to try and satiate that desire, what they did is they adopted. And shortly after they brought that adopted child home, that family had a natural born child. And then several more. And and Packer said, you could watch that family and you could tell. You could tell which child was adopted and which children were not. And you could tell by the way that the parents treated those kids differently. Said it was an incredibly ugly thing to watch and an even uglier thing for that kid to live. This is not how it works in the family of God. The father does not treat the natural born son differently than he treats the adopted children. Again and again and again and again, we see this in the New Testament. 
Things like, like we are going to enjoy the presence of God the same as a natural born son. We are going to receive resurrected bodies the same as the natural born son has now. We are going to share the natural born son's glory and rule alongside of him. The, the future tense reality of adoption is that the inheritance that Jesus has coming, we have coming too. To try and capture just some of the, this idea of that we are God's children. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn, wrote a song, one of the lines of which says this. Oh, how shall I the goodness tell, Father, which thou to me hast shown, that I, a child of wrath and hell, I should be called a child of God. See, the, this is who the scriptures tell us we are, and this is what the creed affirms. But the creed doesn't just affirm that God is Father. It also reminds us that the scriptures teach us that God is Almighty Creator. Now, to try and illustrate this, we're going to do something different. It's going to be a little bit weird. You'll be fine. All right, just work with me on this, all right? What I want you to do, if you, if, whether you're in the room, whether you're online, all right, is I want you to close your eyes. Close your eyes. I can see you out there. Close your eyes and keep, keep your eyes closed throughout this entire illustration, all right? And with your eyes closed, what I want you to do is bring to mind a picture of the planet. Bring to mind a picture of earth just as it is right now with all the stuff that's here, with all the, the people, the mountains, the animals, the, 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 the cars, the, the buildings, the, with the, the planets and the cosmos that surrounds it. Now, with your eyes closed, in your mind, eye, what I want you to do is wipe clean the planet of all the material man-made stuff. No more buildings, no more streets, no more possessions, no more cars, all of it gone. Keeping your eyes closed, in your minds, I want you to next wipe the planet clean of all of humanity. All the man-made stuff is gone now. All the people are gone too. It's planet Earth, oh natural, unadulterated. Next in your mind's eye, wipe the, the, the planet clean of all the birds that fly in the air, all the animals, all the reptiles that run around on the ground. As long as you're getting rid of stuff, get rid of all the creatures that live in the deep, all the creatures of the sea, gone. With your eyes closed, in your mind's eye, in your imagination, next I want you to wipe the planet clean of all the vegetation. No more trees, no more bushes, no more grass. All vegetation, gone. Next I want you to, in your mind's eye, get rid of the stars, get rid of the other planets that coexist with the earth, all the moons, everything in the universe, just the earth now, everything else is gone. The earth existing in isolation. Next, I want you to wipe the earth out. Anything else in the material universe you missed, get rid of that too. And then finally, wipe out any light. So that in your mind's eye, you are left with darkness and absolute nothing. Now open up your eyes. If you did what I asked you to, what you've just done is call to mind the opening scene of the Bible. Genesis 1, we read, in the beginning, God. 
That's it. Everything else is dark, formless, and void. You have nothing but God, the eternal, self-existing, self-sufficient, almighty, who by the power of his word spoke into creation the heavens and the earth. Right there at the beginning of the Bible, God is identified as creator. And then again and again and again and again throughout the scriptures, he's referred to as the creator, the author, the designer of the totality of the created order. And God, as the creator, as the designer, he has the audacity to think of himself as the boss. Has this idea that since he thought it all up and created it all and put it into motion and keeps it going, that he has the right to tell us how life was designed to be lived and how we should live our lives in turn. Like right from the beginning of the Bible, you see God doing this. Right after creation, he starts giving orders. So Genesis 1, he creates, you flip over to Genesis 2 and you read, the Lord God put man in the Garden of Edom. He put him there to farm its land and to take care of it. The Lord God gave the man a command. He said, you may eat the fruit from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will certainly die. The paint isn't even dry on a newly created universe. And God's running around telling everybody what they can and cannot do. He's again and again, he's consistently like, hey, this is how life should be lived, and I have the right to tell you that. Now, some of us may respond to that with, well, who does God think he is? He thinks he is the eternal, self-existing, self-sufficient, almighty creator. He's got this idea that he is God, and that part of the job description that goes with that job is to determine how life should be lived. Which, if I think about it, I have to admit there's some sense to that. Like if I'm willing to lay aside my desire to be my own ultimate authority, if I'm willing to be intellectually honest, it's, I'm hard-pressed not to admit that, that the person who is best equipped to determine how life should be lived is the person who created life itself. But as human beings, we struggle with this. We struggle mightily. And, and the culture that we live in doesn't help because the, the prevailing worldviews of our culture, things like atheism and secular humanism and uh, evolutionary theory, they are forever telling us things like there is no authority outside of yourself you are beholden to. There is no God in heaven who knows best. There is no almighty to whom you should bow the knee. We get to determine for ourselves the difference between right and wrong. We are our own ultimate authority. In a far less sophisticated way than Wesley, another song expresses the idea this way. Life's a test, but I confess, I like the mess I've made so far. <laughs> Great on the curve? Yes, no, maybe, I don't know. Can you repeat the question? You're not the boss of me now. You're not the boss of me now. You're not the boss of me now, and you're not so big. Any Malcolm in the Middle fans? My granddaughter got exposed to this song, and it's now her favorite song. Go figure. 
This idea, this desire to be our own ultimate authority, it's right there. It's silly, but it's nothing new. Again, you go all the way back to the garden, and there it is. God creates humanity. God says to them, hey, don't eat from this tree. If you do, you're certainly going to die. The very first temptation that comes, the tempter says to them, you will surely not die. The tempter's all like, hey, I got news for you. God's holding back on you, telling you you can't do this thing. You see, he knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. You could be the Almighty here. And when the woman saw that the tree was good and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And then apple breath gave some to Adam and we were done. <laughs> right from the beginning. The temptation, the desire is to be our own ultimate authority, to be the almighty ourselves. Right there in the garden, humanity is singing, you're not the boss of me now, and you're not so big. And every time we decide, I'm going to do life my way instead of God's, every time we give in to that temptation, we sing another encore to the performance that was first sung in the garden. When we fail to live the way that God has directed us to live in the scriptures, we actually usurp his role as almighty. And we question, we question his goodness as our father in heaven. See, when God says, hey, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do, God is doing so because he cares. Because he loves us. God understands that doing life our way instead of his, he knows what kind of death that will bring to bear on us. He has been watching it since the garden. And he knows that, this is counterintuitive, but he understands how submitting our lives to him will set us free. And so in love, he exercises authority in our lives. See, we, we can be tempted to think that authority and love are mutually exclusive. They are not. Anybody who's a decent parent understands these two things go hand in hand. Because God loves us, he exercises authority. It would be unloving of God to see us going our own way, see the destruction that we're headed towards, and not to do anything about it. It would be unloving to be a party in our destruction. So because he loves us, he exercises authority and tells us this is how life is designed to be lived. So, in this house, we believe. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We see that the scriptures teach us that we have a Father in heaven who in spite of our performance and merit and potential, loved us and adopted us into his family. And as a loving father, he is the almighty creator who exercises authority in your life and in mine. Would you stand with me, church? About being God's children specifically, the apostle John once wrote this. He said, to all who received him, and him being Jesus, to all who received him, 
to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If today you've yet to believe in Jesus, to, to have received him and what he did for you, but today you're ready to cross that line of belief. Before we continue in our service, I'm going to pray. And I, just, I want to invite you, whether you're watching online, whether you're here in the room, if you're ready to cross that line of faith, to pray with me, and then we'll continue. Father, thank you that when we were at our absolute worst, you loved us. Father, thank you. Father, today, some of us, we just, we confess. We have been singing that song. You're not the boss of me now, and you're not so big in the way that we have lived our lives. We have, we have made a mess, and we are powerless to address this ourselves. We need a Savior. We need Jesus. In this moment, we want to receive him. In this moment, we want to believe, we want to hope, we want to put our faith in his life and his death and his resurrection. Bring us into your family and help us to follow our brother Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.